This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubians. Hello. Good everything, Nubians. Hey, Professor Hunter. What's going on, Dr. Carr? Out in them streets. Well, you said you were unveiling some new things in 2023, so we, we, we kept it a tight state secret, and now you get to unveil for everybody. We're starting to get out in the streets. Yes. So you made it up north. You made yes. it. You escaped. To <laughs> escape. <laughs> you made it the to day the after Harriet Tubman Day. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, that, that was in your city, wasn't it? Yesterday. What's they, it? They, they unveiled a Harriet Tubman monument in Newark. The mayor of Newark was there, Ras Baraka. Queen Latifah actually voiced uh, the, 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 the narrative that goes with the monument. It was designed by a Black woman architect, and the narrative itself was written by a Black woman. And they were all in Newark cutting the ribbon yesterday on, on the 10th of March, which is annually Harriet Tubman Day. It's the day she made transition in 1913. So <laughs> they don't let people know, but now we know. <laughs> this this will never miss my radar ever again. I'm only right. doing, doing Foolishness Friday when no, this no, is no. important. You know. Well, you know, she was doing Foolishness Friday, too, because she had escaped the freedom. I'm sure there were many Fridays where she would have tuned in to that show, to your point. We fried some fish. You know, it, I think... I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we we put our, our heroes in these boxes of like, you know, they're in stone, literally statues in stone. But there were people that fried fish probably um, cussed, you know, they probably, you know, they probably did some things. No you know, there were people just like we are no experiencing question. life and then doing whatever they have to do to, right. to live it abundantly. So. Yeah. Yes. Right. How you feeling this morning? This morning, this evening, this afternoon, everywhere globally. How you feeling? Absolutely. I got out in them streets myself. You Did know, you? snowing. Well, I mean, you know, snowing. I, 104 days now straight of being out without miss. You know, I put on my little Uggs and went out there and let the okay. snow fall on me. Yeah, because yeah, we're living. Why are there so many Ugg stores in the greater New York, New Jersey area? I don't go to them. I, I buy mine online, but I, exactly. Uh, I'm like, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. stores are in split levels. I'm like, good yeah. lord. But yeah. you, yeah, you, you, you made, you made it out. You always do. That's a rich yeah. You don't miss yeah. that. It is now. It is now. And you know, I think people wear those Uggs too in the summertime, which I, you know. But yeah, I don't understand how people yeah. feet don't burst into flames. Yeah, yeah, do that. Uh, that's your business. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, so what? What are you? What is this backdrop? This is a real back. Oh, this is not a fake no. backdrop, y'all. This is not. No. Fake. That's it. That's exactly right. And we have to uh, thank our dear brother James Cleckley. Uh, Jimmy wow. Cleckley is the lead ranger at the New York African Burial Ground. This is the burial ground itself. In fact, hey, let me adjust this a little bit. You can see our ancestors there. I'll, I'll come back up in a minute. You see those mounds there, Professor Hunter? Oh my God! Yeah, this is that. This is glass. So we just looking at. It's not a backdrop. These are seven crypts. Those mounds. Each under each one of those mounds is a huge crypt, which has caskets in it that were carved in Ghana, West Africa, and lined with kente cloth, and sent to the United States. There are four hundred and nineteen of our ancestors. And in fact, let me let me get up over here. I don't know if I can do it. Oh yeah. Here we go. I'm gonna show you one. Hilarious. Let me show you one. You see that? Oh wow. These are these are the caskets. And my man, 
Jimmy, let's see if I can open one. Yep. If you open it, what you'll see is they are lined hand-woven kente. That's not kente print from China. This is hand-woven kente from Kumasi, Ghana. You know, men do the weaving in the village of Kumasi among the Ashanti people, as you know. And they are hand-carved. The, the remains of ancestors were slotted into large wooden, put this back now, into large wooden crypts, seven of them. So each of the crypts holds a couple of hundred of our ancestors. And then they lowered them into the ground. I'll tell you the whole story. Uh, that happened in 2004. I remember they had a whole procession. Whole they, procession. Yeah. Whole procession. In fact, those caskets were taken one by one. They were sent to Washington, D.C., as you know. Um, they were sent to Washington, D.C. because for 10 years, the remains of our ancestors were housed, stored, preserved, um, explored, treated with care because they are our ancestors at Howard University in the Montague Cobb lab. Montague Cobb, one of the great scientists of the 20th century. The lab is named for him. At that time, it was directed by Michael Blakey, Dr. Michael Blakey, um, who is now at the College of William and Mary. He was at the faculty on faculty at Howard. His lieutenant, Mark Edward Mack, who made transition uh, some time ago, was second in charge. And and his uh, one of the people on his team, in fact, she led the DNA research. She is the sister who set up the first DNA bank in Africa. Everybody doing the DNA swab and test and Ancestry.com and then Skip Gates. Yeah, you go sit over there with your social structure friends. The name I'm about to name is the sister who really led what became the spark for all that DNA testing. And that's Dr. Fatima Linda Coleman Jackson, who at the time was at the University of Maryland, then she went to the University of North Carolina. And then when Mark Mack made transition, tragically in an automobile accident, um, she was recruited to leave the University of North Carolina to take over the Cobb Lab at Howard University. Uh, that is a team of black scientists. They were black historians. Um, Dr. Edna Mefford in the history department at Howard University, Selwyn Carrington, now an ancestor in Caribbean history uh, at Howard, and a number of other folk from around the country. Uh, our friend Howard Dotson, who was at the time over at Schomburg, an international team of scholars. And um, the reason those ancestors were at Howard for a decade is because as they were digging the foundations where, where I'm sitting right now, this is the federal building, uh, the Ted Weiss federal building that was being built. And so they went down in the ground as they do. And uh, across the street is another federal building. Uh, and this is a federal square. Now, of course, those of you who are New Yorkers or if you watch Law and Order, one police plaza is behind the building right directly behind us we see here. And then over the left is the courthouse, all that stuff you see on Law and Order, all that stuff is there. We're in the square, as you know well, Professor Hunter, having been down here professionally for a number of years. But they were building another building. And when they were building, of course, they're doing they're doing the, the foundations 24 hours a day. Uh, as the story goes from local historians, mouth to ear historians, there was a brother um, who one of our from the Spanish speaking community, Afro Spanish speaking community, in fact, uh, who saw that there were bones being hauled off of this site, which means there's a cemetery. And as we know, if you see bones, you're supposed to stop excavation. Well, he, he sounded the alarm. 
And of course, then construction had to stop. Well, right around the corner, as you know, all New Yorkers know, and as, as you know, Professor Hunter, there's Pace University. Pace University was called in to uh, do some investigation and didn't take a whole lot of historical research to discover that this whole area, not just where we're looking at right here, but the entire, roughly speaking, four and a half acre area, uh, in other words, two or three city blocks, um, City Hall, of course, is right over here. Um, Broadway, right across there. You keep going down Broadway, Wall Street, all that. This entire, roughly speaking, four and a half acre area was a burial ground. As many as 15, well, the, the estimate is 15,000 or more. So that's the floor. African people buried in the ground where these buildings are that we see every day in movies and television. About 15,000 or more African people between the mid 17th century, around the 1640s, and the late 18th century, around the 1790s. In other words, right up to the founding of the criminal enterprise known as United States of America, um, handed off by the English to their children, the Americans, but before that, taken by the English from their cousins and rivals and competitors, the Danish, because of course this was New Amsterdam, and the Africans who had been pulled into this criminal enterprise all across those centuries were burying their people here in full ritual form. And so when Pace University was called in after the bones were discovered, well, of course, the Africans of the greater New York area, New York, Jersey, Connecticut, uh, Maryland, all over the, really, the, the, the country, and certainly in this area, all the boroughs, so not just Brooklyn, not just Queens, not just uh, Manhattan, uh, Long Island was involved, Staten Island, the Negroes that came here and laid down in front of bulldozers. So y'all ain't gonna bulldoze no more. And then when Pace was called in, they said, okay, that's nice. It's a lot of white people, a lot of white students, a lot of white academics. We're gonna need something else. And by the way, shout out to the Congressional Black Caucus uh, at the time in the federal government, because it's a federal building, they held hearings here in New York. Uh, those hearings were led, many of the most important ones, by Congressman Gus Savage. You remember uh, Gus Savage, Professor Hunter out of Chicago? Gus Savage. Yes. yes. Old school leftist. Gus Savage was the one holding the hearings. And there's a, there, there's a documentary they do here that they show the people who come to the visitor center, because we're just in the administrative office. The visitor center takes up a corner of the first floor of this federal building. Um, the uh, there's a there's a scene in there where he's gabbling in the testimony and you see John Henry Clark, you see Howard Dyson, you see scholars, Mike Blakey and them, they testifying on the importance of this discovery because what they found was these are Africans. And then Gus Savage shuts down the meeting because he brings in the GSA, the Government Services Administration and says, y'all want to build a building, huh? You don't get a penny without us. We do Congress. We, we, we hold the purse strings. You're not going to do nothing on this site until you do right by these Africans and their descendants, because the people now are known as the descendant community. And he bangs the gavel and said, this meeting is adjourned. <laughs> and, you, and all the black people start cheering on what those government guys got to do. See, this was supposed to go all the way out to that street. Hmm. This is what I'm supposed to be here. They stopped it. And when they stopped it, the pay students came in, the pay and the lead team, the black people came back and said, oh, hell no. These are black people. Black hands should touch this. And of course, white folks said, well, where you got enough black academics in one place to lead something like this? And black people said, well, Howard University. And that's how Howard got involved. You know. You so know. Right. On... Well, no, they don't know at Howard. I'm telling them now. Because see, this is the problem with Negro colleges. They have short 
short memory. So uh, y'all hearing this at Howard? This is your birthright, but act like it. Because if you don't, you know, we, we got something for that. But go ahead, Prof. No, on, <laughs> on the on the the crypt uh, the uh tomb that's behind on right there in the square yes what what is that what is housed in there and i see the akan symbol uh that means god is in the heavens i don't know if i'm going to pronounce it correctly that's right you better you better you better speak that tree well, I'm working. I'm working with a couple of uh, Akan scholars right now to put together a symbol book of several. Actually, I want to do some coffee table books, highlighting the symbols and and doing something with them because I, you know, we need to remember we're just walking around with tattoos and looking at things and not knowing. Uh -huh. Like the Meta Nature inspired all of that because uh -huh. there's something spiritual. There's very there's something very spiritual about the 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 ancestors that put those symbols into the universe for us to live by because they're they they're messages for us to live by they're absolutely. blueprints absolutely they are blueprints they're absolutely so you're absolutely right in fact um yeah let me let me because because good because again y'all if you're watching this uh you know on youtube or through the week uh beyond narrative and nubia and base and, and and good everything nubians everywhere uh, as we're doing this live um, please understand that, you know, we're teaching and learning the meta nature and these symbol systems are very important. So if you're watching this, please know that you can go into the narrative archive and we talk about the story that I'm recounting here in short form because we covered it kind of extensively. And, you know, we want to talk a little bit about some other folk this morning, including Lorraine Hansberry, who basically who, who, who we will touch in this conversation, by the way, very interestingly. But um yeah that symbol there this comes this is part two of the struggle part one of the struggle was to stop the construction to excavate the ancestors who still were here to have them treated with care and to study them to determine what could be determined about their lives the time and date of their lives and so under the leadership of those black scientists black historians black social scientists black cultural workers what was began what began to emerge is a picture of who these Africans were, and and we can certainly talk about that. If you go in the archive, you can you can hear the conversation. Many of these folk Africans were buried with children. You see clavicles with separation. You see the scars of carrying all this weight. You see uh, where they had been whipped, had been shot. All these things, hard lives of African women, men, and children who lived. And so you know. All of this driven, and I love how Fatima puts it as a DNA scientist. You know, she said the questions began to move from how African are you? No, it's gonna swab my cheek and find out how Africa. Oh, I'm 15%. Mende, Fatima reminds us that the DNA bank in Africa being set up among the last. When you take one of them swabs in your mouth and think, oh, I didn't realize I was this Irish. No, fool. The only, the only thing that you can tell from a database with a swab is based on DNA that other people swab. Most people, the vast majority of people in the world ain't never had no swab in their mouth. So you don't have, the bank is only as good as the people who participate in it. But that's not even the issue. As Fatima reminds us, among others, it's not how African are you. It's the, what the black folk who laid down in front of the bulldozers. I'm talking about Mother Melba Franklin out of South Carolina, who was a member of the First World Alliance and, and ASCAC for many years. I'm talking about all the Af Herbert, Herbert Daughtry, Reverend Daughtry and all them, all the people who came and protested. It, they were less interested in how African are you because they know they are Africans. As Fatima reminds us, the DNA connects us all as a species. So I ain't got to take no swab to know I'm an African. 
because I had parents and they had parents and they had parents. The question they wanted to know is, where are we from? And that's a different question. See, we're going to talk about narratives this morning. You you put Lorraine Hansberry out in the universe last night, Prof, and we're going to talk about that question of how you tell a story. It's not just data. It's how you read the data. And what Mike Blakey says is that what the African people wanted to know was from this data you're collecting, how does the picture emerge of where we are from and who we are, not how African we are. We are Africans. So after they did that for 10 years of studying, it was time to put these ancestors in their resting place again. They couldn't take them home, as we know, but they could take them to where they had suffered, where they had been born and raised and suffered, put them to the criminal enterprise. And that's when the ritual, and I was there in uh, 2003, October 2003, when the first leg of the ritual began in the Andrew Rankin Chapel in, on the campus of Howard University. And undergraduate students, some of them now have PhDs themselves, are teachers, professors, doctors, lawyers, administrators, do all kind of stuff in groups of two, because you saw how small those caskets were, because you're not laying bodies out. These are bones. And so after they were carefully placed in there, one student on each side took the casket and walked them from Frederick Douglass Hall, where those ancestors had been in the Cobb Lab, over to the Andrew Rankin Chapel. And they had a ritual. They poured libation, they sang. It was a beautiful thing. And as they did that, they then took that ritual. And, and they also invited the elders who had done the protests. So these same elders who had put their lives on the lines were, were invited out of the great New York, New Jersey area. They came down to D.C. and they followed these caskets from D.C. to Baltimore, where they did another ritual. From Baltimore to Delaware, Wilmington, Delaware, where they did another ritual. From Delaware to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia, Mother Bethel, they did another ritual. From there, they came into Jersey. They stopped in Trenton, and they came up, and then when they got to Jersey City, they put 419 caskets on a barge and sailed them across the Hudson. And then all night, they were above ground. You can't see the big caskets. You can only see, I showed you one of the small ones, they were sliding in. And they had them on a platform, you can see there. And it was like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then everybody got to write notes and put flowers and pour libation. And they put them down in there. And, they, and then the next day, this was, a, this was a Friday. And then the next day, they had the big ritual. Now, mind you, they stayed out here all night. So they were drumming and dancing, not just here, but all around the corner. And then Saturday morning, they had the, the big ritual. Cicely Tyson read it, I read. Maya Angelou read, uh, Still Our Eyes. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. 
and their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It was packed. Packed there. Shoulder to shoulder. And so then they lowered them into the ground. And then they covered them. But this wasn't here. This part two. This is part two. Because you asked about the symbol. Now let's get to the symbol. Then they had the competition. How are you going to build a memorial? You've reburied them. Nothing is here now but the graves. So now they decide, because they cut this footprint out of the federal building that goes all the way up, what you going to do with that? Before you get to that, before you get to that, Dr. Carr, what are you feeling as you are, you know, you you often often challenge us to sit sit with our ancestors, you know. This, This space is not just sacred. Mm. We we spend so much of our existence outside of ourselves. This is inside work. What are you feeling? Well, that's why we have to have balance, Professor Hunter. This this let me tell you we spent in February talking about this AP African American history, African American studies course they call it. It's not African American studies by my definition. Because unless you're clear about who we are to each other, everything else is just an exercise in trying to defend your humanity. That's why we have to have a social structure category. What I'm feeling in the social structure context is very simple. Burn it down. All of it right now. This must be remade from the atomic structure or burn it down. You can't. These people suffered. And then each one of them represents countless others. How many our ancestors are? Buried in the Atlantic, in the Indian Ocean, in the Pacific. How many of them have you visited over the last week? Your own parents, grandparents. How many people suffered? Called out their name, called by their first name, elders, those who were spit on, those who were cheated throughout, and then they suffer. And then what I'm feeling is, I don't want to see no more minstrels on television, on radio, on Netflix live specials, grinning and skinning. I don't want to see no more of it because you have shamed these ancestors. That's what I'm feeling on the social structure. On the governance structure, I'm feeling very determined that we must continue to work, which is a work in progress always, of being what we need to be to each other because that's what's going to free us and that's what's going to help us in the world. Lorraine Hansberry says something. Uh, she gave a talk back in, uh, in short, not too long before she made transit. Well, 1959. She gave a talk called The Negro Writer and His Roots. And she, she talked about the fact that all 
art is ultimately social. But, you know, she said, I was asked by an artist, you know, why do this? Human beings, you know, what is the meaning of all this? What's the meaning of life? We live, we die. It's going to happen. So why do anything? I mean, what's what's the purpose? Lorraine Hansberry says she thought about it for a minute. She's talking to black artists in 1959. And she says, ultimately, well, you know, I do this because I think maybe humans, human beings out of all the species might impose the reason for life on life. In other words, I'm not satisfied enough with just living. I'm saying that of the species, perhaps we have been entrusted with making life mean something, might making life mean something beyond just life. Now we can debate whether as a way of knowing that something that is deeply inherently African, and I think there's an argument to be made that there that it is, and also an argument to be made that it can be misinterpreted. But when we think about it that way, what I'm feeling is that uh that we all have a responsibility, not just to these ancestors, but to each other and to those who come after us because they suffered, but they did not suffer without hope. Because one thing Mike Blakey talks about is when you do the DNA and Solomon Jackson talks about doing the DNA on these bodies and how, how to enter their bodies and to extract DNA, the bones. And she said, that only gets you so far. That only gets you so far because, well, of course, we know Africans were the first humans on the planet. So therefore, we're going to be connected to everybody because everybody's our children. So that's only going to get you so far. But what, what Blakey says is, but then they discovered, wait. The indigenous people and the white people were not being buried with waste beads. So when Henry Gates comes bopping along and tries to connect, you know, Angela Davis to the Mayflower or some white person to the plantation, and he's skinning and grinning and giggling. I ain't mad at him. I understand the deep weight of trauma in a life because as an African man, I sympathize with your brother. I mean, I've never been arrested on the porch of my house after I lived there for a long time by neighbors who would call the police on me. But I've had the police call on me, so I understand. So I, I, you know, I don't forgive him. I don't have to forgive him. He's got to meet his own maker. But what that DNA does is only get you part of the way. What Mike Blakey says is these white people and indigenous people who we share DNA with, who we gave them the DNA, they didn't get buried with waste beads. They didn't have Sankofa symbols on their caskets. They didn't have certain filings in their teeth. So while I took the DNA and could tell you Mende or Yoruba, I could tell you Kikongo, what I couldn't tell you is the care with which one of these children was buried with a little dog. That's the culture. That's the cultural meaning making. So when you see those symbols, and when you see around this, the, the, the arc of the, uh, and this is called, some people call it an arc. We'll talk about Kenny Leon, the brother who designed this in a minute. There are symbols around this entire monument, each of which speaks to movement and memory. There's a Christian cross, there's a star and crescent, there's a Yowa sign, there's Kikongo stuff, there's, there's symbols from Vodun and Santeria that are used in those, there's Mende symbols, there's Incidibi scripts. In other words, these are the scripts of our people, and none of them are Latin-based. Because as you say, it's one thing to put together symbols which represent sounds. It's quite another to put a picture because a picture expands your mind. That's a form of inscription. It's a form of science. It's a form of a way of knowing. It's a form of meaning making, and it allows you to pass on movement and memory. So what I'm feeling is a deep responsibility I think we all feel and should feel to each other to not just protect each other, not to have self, just have self-determination, but ultimately to remind ourselves that it is our responsibility as the mothers and fathers of every human who will ever walk this ball to be corrective 
not to destroy something simply for the sake of destroying it. That would be revenge. It would be deeply satisfying. I would agree with Francois Renaud in that regard, but that would not be enough. Now that it has been reduced to its previous state, we must now rebuild anew. And we must never allow this to happen again. Never again takes on a special meaning to an African person. We sympathize with, we empathize with, we connect with any group of people who have been through a historical trauma because we have been through the largest human trauma in contemporary human memory and an ongoing trauma as we live the afterlives of it. So what I feel is a responsibility, not just to black people, but to humanity. Um, we might impose the reason for life on life, to quote uh, Hansberry. So sitting with these ancestors, and it's very difficult, and I'm sure that in Nubia now, uh, somebody has already dropped the link. If not, uh, Nubians jump into the New York African Burial Ground for the National Park Service. Yeah, that would be the National Park Service. You see there, there's the National Park Service medallion, African Burial Ground National Monument. This is the 20th anniversary medallion. Uh, but one thing about Ranger Jimmy Cleckley and his and his staff, they always gonna make sure they have the symbols together. And we wanna thank uh, Ranger Cleckley who came in early this morning and also one of his lieutenant, lieutenants, Emily Watson, who was one of a long line of park rangers who stand guard over this site and actually eight others in the region. Jimmy is running big things now. So if you go to Governor's Island, if you go up to Alexander Hamilton's house, uh, you know, there's a lot of places that Ranger Cleckley has responsibility for, and he took time out of his schedule today. He don't get no days off to come in and let us into it. So we're very happy about that. On the other side, however, is the symbol that's on the side. And of course, you see the Sankofa, don't you, Prof? This is the Sankofa symbol. And of course, this is the Sankofa, uh, of course, which means literally go get it in tree uh, among the Akan people meaning you must retrieve from the past to go forward. And also on this, and I'll show you a small block. This is a this is a one of the things that they've had done. Let me see if I pull this so you can see. This is uh you see that's the aerial an aerial view. So mm. the Sankofa, you'll see there is an etching on the side of that monument that says for all those who were lost, for all those who were stolen, for all those who were left behind, for all those who were not forgotten. So you see there, that's the uh, the monument. So, but again, that's part two. So let me, I'll do this very quickly. Again, you can go to narrative and go into archive. You'll see how we talk about this. So there, the, the reburial had taken place. Now you're going to have a fight over the monument. And not a bad fight, a good fight. Steel sharp and steel. Competition. The winner of that competition was a brother named Kenny Leon. Still hailing hardy, still teaching, still designing. And this brother designed a monument with seven elements. So what we're seeing there, that that, that first element, it, be, the first element, of course, is the ancestors themselves. Each of these 419 ancestors represents countless others. So they're not just individuals now. These are our ancestors, there, and there are burial grounds all over the world. And of course, there are monuments all over the world. We've talked about that too in there, so I won't get in, into that. We talked about some of that. The second element of the seven, and of course, we know seven, as you know, Prof. Seven, of course, you always remind us that's that's a sacred number in our ways of knowing. Uh, the second element is the um, the wall that allows us to see the. <clears throat> I'm sorry. The wall on this side on what would be on the, the I'm looking I'm pointing in this direction, going this way, which has the Sankofa on it. And the and the and the and the same, 
that's on this arc almost look like a truncated pyramid of sorts, which is also what it's supposed to symbolize. And you see there's a door there in the middle where you get to go in. You can you can walk in through that door. On the other side is the third of the elements. That's a map of New York where the burial ground was. So if you could go around to the other side, you can see on this side of Sankofa, on that side is a map, and you see how large this burial ground was. Again, symbolic. Uh, of our people. The fourth of the elements is the actual structure, the Sankofa, I'm sorry, with the Sankofa on the side. This is the ancestral chamber. You enter it, and when you enter it, you see how it slopes, don't you, bro? Mm. And I know you've been in, when you enter it, it crowds you. You get crowded. It's like being in a ship. It's like being in a ship. So uh, contrast this with the um, the uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. When you go down on that basement floor, you 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 you, you enter the out of the elevator, you enter that first exhibit space, and it's very crowded. That's by design to give you a sense of enslavement. But here's the thing. This is the genius of Kenny Leon, good brother. Um, he talks about the fact that this is, I'm sorry, I said Kenny Leon. Ken, Kenny Leon is the, uh, is the dramatist, is the play, is the, the, the play director, the playwright. Uh, the brother I'm thinking about is uh, Rodney Leon, Rodney Leon. When Rodney Leon says, you crowd in there, and you know, we're taking a number of students from Howard in here because after that first year, the, ne the, the, the next year, 2004, I was telling the students about it. And they said, we should go. So I took a bus up here and we came for years. When we did freshman seminar, we would take all the freshmen in College of Arts Science at Howard up here. So you get as many of them in there and they crowd it. And then there's another door beyond this chamber and that is the next element. It's called the door of return. Not the mm -hmm. door of no return, the door of return. Because, and by the way, this structure is also designed to gesture toward the first structures built like this for interment of ancestors. And those would be mastabas. And of course that's ancient Egyptian. Leon had all of this in mind. He, was he won this competition for a reason. So he's coming through the ancient, this ain't a slave ship. He's putting it in the comedic sense. And then it opens into return, which leads you to the next two elements. That one of them is the circle with all the symbols that I mentioned. He calls that the circle of diaspora. So all the spiritual systems, all the ways of knowing, not all the ones we have, because you can't count them all, but symbolic of all these traditions. And he doesn't leave out the spirituality that infused the ones that we were forced into, like Islam and Christianity. So he says, you know, we, those are those are traditions that were birthed out of Africa, but then were returned to us in mangled form that we re-Africanized. So you see all of that represented in that next element, which is the circle of, of, of ancestors, of diaspora rather. And then there's a spatial progression because what you can see is, you can't really see it, but as you go down, it's sloping down. It takes you into a bowl. And the circle of progression, which is the sixth of the elements, takes you and it puts the ages, relative ages, and possible occupations of the Africans who are buried here. So they don't know their names, but what they can say is probably 12 years old, somewhere between 35 and 45 years old. Maybe based on what we could retrieve from whatever was left in terms of material culture, a laborer, or a craftsperson. I mean, just a handful of people to represent all of our ancestors who did that labor. And then that resolves itself into the final element, which they call the libation chamber. 
That's the floor. And there's a map of Africa and the world. And it's radiating out. And if you stand dead center in that libation chamber and talk like this, you can be heard throughout the mind frame. It is, it is, it is designed almost like a, a, like a natural microphone. And when you hear, you can hear your own voice. And as, and as, uh, as Rod Leon says, when you stand there, you can say a prayer and you can hear it as if you are on a microphone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said it exactly backwards. When you're standing there, you can say a prayer. You can say whatever you want. And it's like you, everybody can hear you. But if you're standing even three feet outside of that dead center, you can't hear the person. That is incredible. I, I've done it myself. I had students, I say, stand there and say something. And you just stand there and say, now say, 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 say what you want to say to your ancestors. And they'll say, okay. And you see them do like this because to them it sounds like it's all over. But to anybody standing outside that little circle and all around, you can't hear nothing they're saying. He, just, he said, this is something that you say to your ancestors. It is incredibly powerful. And in fact, on the 10th anniversary of the, uh, the discovery, um, I actually came up and poured libation in that chamber for the 10th, for the 10th anniversary of the celebration. And they've had all kinds of rituals there. So that was the second part of the two. It was the, it was the reinterment and then the monument. So that, that's just a little bit about where, where we are today, the burial ground. So thank you. It's something. You know, this space was created because all over the world, there were people that may never make their way there. That's right. We had an opportunity to infuse this knowledge and this spirit globally through the technology. And now you're actually out going to places uh, this summer, including uh, yeah. Egypt. So that's what we said we were going to do. Yeah. No, it's, it's, that's what we said we we're going to do. We said we, we, we were planning this. Yeah. I want to thank you too. You know, covering things from a journalistic perspective is not the same as sitting in it and really, mm -hmm. you know, there's a disconnect that is required of a solid journalist to not be in the story. <laughs> you know? Yes. This, we have to be in the story. Yes. Yes. Because we are, we have, I'm so glad you said, Prof, why did you bring up Lorraine Hansberry last night when we were talking? Oh, because today is the anniversary of A Raisin in the Sun's debut on Broadway. She's the first Black woman to produce a Broadway play. And today it made its debut on this day. And <laughs> I think about, you know, that was it. You know, like this woman didn't live very long. And, and to me, it's an inspiration because you don't have to do a whole lot to no. to do a whole lot. No. I think a lot of us think we're doing too much and we're ripping and running and trying to do everything. You just do that one thing like George Washington Carver, like Lorraine Hansberry, like, you know, like so many others that whose names we may not be able to call, but whose lives impacted us. Um, this woman's storytelling and her way of thinking so young, didn't spend a whole lot of time on this earth. No. Left, left way too early mm. and yet we know Lorraine Hansberry to this day and you talked about her uncle I think last week so I was yeah, like William Leo Hansberry yeah. in fact let me let me let, 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 let me walk across that bridge before I do right Broadway 
we went to see Lion King the other night, and you were talking about <laughs> taking taking your guys are taking the child. See, I was, you know, like, wow, this is this is amazing. While we were waiting to, to uh, after we while we were waiting to get in, a young sister approached us and said, uh, "Oh, my name is Shireen Robinson uh, Randall, Shireen Randall, and I'm a, a documentarian." She was working the house, you know. I mean, as you know, Prof, I mean, there are those who work because they can't take a day off and there are those who are working in different circumstances because they can work from anywhere in the world. And that class divide is so striking here in New York, like it is all over the world. But you just see, you see the dark office buildings and then you see the people who clean up those office buildings. You know, going over to Rockefeller Center, you see the folks who can't, who have to come to work, opening the car doors, polishing the floors, telling people where to go, the tour guides. And then you see the people who can work from anywhere in the world, and so they do. And uh, But but anyway, this young sister, uh, Shireen, she said, you know, I'm a Nubian. So she's probably here today if she ain't got to go work. She's somewhere working probably, but she's a documentarian. She just finished a project that she's now getting. Uh, she, people are looking at it. Her, her crew is putting it together, and she says... You know, I know we're putting together a documentary team in Nubia, and I don't want to be part of it. Now, we just, I mean, so when you say that, I mean, all these connections. Everywhere I go and I see this and know that this didn't exist three years ago, this didn't exist really two whole years ago, mm-hmm. and that people are, they, they feel a way about being a Nubian, it means yeah. something. Yes. Because we mean something to each other. Yes. And I was telling you last night, and we don't talk much, y'all. We don't, you know, we no, we, no, no. 90% of the time we come in, I ain't even talk to them. I'm like, what are we doing? Okay. <laughs> right. right. Just, but that's because that's of me, because, you know, I'm just. No, I'm, no, I'm but it's, dance. you know, we don't have to because the dance, no. the dance is happening, you know. I, and I, like I said to you, it was last week, and the ancestors are going to lead this because I have no idea <laughs> what's going to happen, you know. But I was ta- telling you, you know, I, I, I imagine the world that I want to live in and then I put it out and it's not my responsibility to actually make it all happen. And that I know. So I don't sit, I don't worry about how is it going to happen? I'm just going to say, we need this. This is needed. We need some storytellers out there who have skills because I don't have those skills and they come because you have to put out the call, right? So this is a calling. This is a calling. Daniel Black has the coming. We have the calling. Has the coming and the calling, right. And people are coming. They're coming. In fact, uh, again, we didn't plan this. I mean, you mentioned Lorraine Hansberry, and I completely lost track of that. Um, realizing that this is the anniversary of the debut of uh, Raising the Sun. I, I mean, I certainly had, had, had lost track of it. I mean, you know, it's a play that started life when she was drafting something called uh, The Crystal Stair after Langston Hughes, who she knew, you know, mother to son. And then it becomes Raising in the Sun after another of Hughes's uh, poems, a Dream Deferred. What happens to a dream deferred? And on the 11th, as you said, the 11th of March, 1959, which is why, by the way, she was giving that speech. She gave the speech I quoted from on the 1st of March of that year because they were getting ready to open a Raising in the Sun. And she's talking about the responsibility of the artist, the responsibility of the Black artist, and so, you know, it wasn't on my radar. And we did talk about her uncle, William Leo Hansberry. Now let's tie that to the burial ground very quickly. Uh, the William Leo Hansberry Society, as we know, uh, the last Saturday in February, two weeks ago, launched itself. Uh, Sister Deborah Hurd, um, brilliant uh, scholar, doing some very important work in the Nile Valley. 
Uh, Mario Beatty is a member of that society. A number of Nubians are a member. Our members and one of uh, they did they did their opening launch and on uh, William Leo Hansberry's birthday, uh, Mama Gail Hansberry, one of uh, William Leo Hansberry's two daughters, uh, spoke as well. She's he's in Washington D.C. She and her sister. But I mention it as well because in in relation to the burial ground, because uh, as I said, Michael Blakey was at Howard. Um, his lieutenant Mark Mack, my very good friend and colleague, we would often be two of not the first two faculty members on campus. I'd be in there Thursday morning, five, six o'clock in the morning, looking over notes, and I'd look over in Douglas Hall, there'd be one light on. I said, that's Mark. And he would come outside, he smoked nasty cigars. You could smell them damn cigars all over the campus. And he would come out maybe around seven, and he'd be in the back smoking a cigar, and I'd go out there sometime and talk to him. Mark Mack was a brilliant anthropologist. He worked on burial grounds a lot of different places. He was working on a D.C. burial ground when uh, a couple of days before um, graduation. He met with his students, his undergraduate students, some of them who carried those caskets, by the way. And Mac met with his students. He was finished, he'd done his exams, and he took them out to lunch. And he drove home, and he was around the corner from his house when he got hit by a car. He never regained consciousness. Yeah. I remember going to the hospital and uh, National Hospital Center across from Howard. It was the night before graduation. And he was laying there. His wife was there. And uh, they had a little girl. His parents had him come in. He's from Ohio. And we were just, you know, holding his hand. He wasn't going to ever regain consciousness. And they were keeping him on machines till his parents could get there. And so uh, we were leaving the hospital when his parents were coming in. They hadn't told him anything about the condition. So, you know, of course, they're coming in rushing to see their son. They said, well, he's up there. And we, you know, took them where it was and then we left before we could see them see him because that's a very, you know, you, it's tough. But you want to be, you know, you need to be. And so uh, they had his funeral on campus uh, about a week later. And it was at the funeral that Fatima came up from North Carolina, Jackson, and we were standing there. I said, Fatima, there's nobody who, you know, would need to continue this work better than you. And she left University of North Carolina and came to Howard because she said, we, somebody who's in this got to keep this. I want you Negroes to hear this at Howard University. Any Negro who thinks that somehow, or any university for that matter, who thinks you can substitute your will for the will of a people. Not only will you fail, people not even going to remember your name. And you know who I'm talking about. So at any rate, when we started taking the young people up here, we named that journey the Mark Edward Mack trip to the New York African burial ground. One of Mark's lieutenants, who was an undergrad at the time, eh, he was inconsolable. This young brother went off, got a PhD. He's an anthropologist. He also has skills as a diver. He's one of the divers who helped lead the stuff around the Clotilda in Mobile through the Caribbean. Trains a lot of black young people who want to learn dive. His name is Justin Dunavit. He's a member of the William Leo Hansberry Society. William Leo Hansberry, of course, the uncle of Lorraine Hansberry. And so even though we didn't talk about this until right this moment, you see how the ancestors are here. 
and uh, the Hansberry Society is doing well. A lot of those folks are Nubians. A lot of them are here now. So, you know, I just wanted to shout out Justin because I'll never forget that, how those young people were crushed by that. But they weren't crushed in a way that debilitated them. It fortified them and carried their work on. So, yeah, Mark Mack lives in Justin Dunn. And any Negro who think you can substitute your will for the will of a people and think that an Ivy League degree or a contract with Netflix or Hulu or anywhere else and somehow you going to somehow correct everything that happened before us, you're looking in the wrong direction. You need to take another look at this. You're looking in the wrong direction. And if you think you can drive us into a ditch, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to be in the ditch and we go on. You understand? So the niece of William Leo Hansberry out of Mississippi, her father, William Hansberry's brother, Carl, Lorraine Hansberry, of course, born in Chicago, because like a lot of Mississippi Negroes then and now migrating to Chicago, she was born in 1930. Her birthday and Malcolm X's birthday the same day. In fact, if you read Martin Duberman's work, among others, on Paul Robeson, she was close to Paul Robeson, Lorraine Hansberry. Uh, Malcolm X, um, I want to say he was at Lorraine Hansberry's funeral because Lorraine Hansberry made transition on the 12th of January, 1965, Malcolm was assassinated a month later in Harlem. And I want to say, uh, if I remember correctly from Duberman's work, that's the first place I read it, uh, Malcolm was there because Robeson was there. And by then, Robeson wasn't doing a whole lot of public appearances. By then, the social structure had tried to destroy him completely, in term, including physically. But he had come to Lorraine Hansberry's ritual, and Malcolm asked to be introduced to Robeson. Because when he was in prison, Paul Robeson records was one of the things that he listened to. And so, you know, Robeson was a great hero of Malcolm's. And he was so intimidated by the idea of meeting Paul Robeson. And I think it was Ozzie Davis. He asked, please introduce me to Paul Robeson. But that was at Lorraine Hansberry's funeral. Her wake or her funeral, I have to remember. Because I'm out of, you know, I'm, I'm not by the books if I had checked it this morning if I could have. But at any rate, Lorraine Hansberry, uh, her father, Carl, was a real estate guy. And he also helped start a black bank. And so when you see a raising in the sun, but you're really not, you're not looking at Lorraine Hansberry's experiences directly, but you are looking at her uh, experiences directly. When you see, um, in terms of cultural meaning making, a playwright, what are you doing? And again, Hansberry feels this responsibility. She says, you know, when you see the play, the play that began life as the crystal stair, life for her had been a crystal stair because her daddy and mama were, solid middle class in Chicago. You know, Carl Hansberry owned property. Carl Hansberry was pushing back against segregation. Now, the social structure will read Carl Hansberry as a hero because Carl Hansberry filed a lawsuit, and I teach this uh, law, this this uh, this lawsuit uh, when we cover property law in my class at Howard Law School. It's called Hansberry versus Lee. So those of you who are lawyers or law students or legal scholars, you know the case Hansberry versus Lee. It's a case that predates um, Shelley versus Kramer and, and Heard versus Hodge and the proper and the restrictive covenant cases. You know those covenant cases where you can't sell to a black person, so you break try to break the restrictive covenant. Well, Hansberry challenged the restrictive covenants in Chicago uh, by buying property in a white neighborhood, including one of the properties that he moved into. Well, ultimately, the Supreme Court dismissed the challenge to the restrictive covenants on a legal technicality. So ultimately, the case was not resolved as a restrictive covenant case. That would have to wait to 1948. 
I think Hansberry versus Lee would have been 1937. So 12 years later, that 11 years later, you get the restrictive covenants kicked out with the uh, the famous uh, Shelley versus Kramer case. 1940. Was it 40? Oh, Hansberry versus Lee. It's 1940. So then that's that's probably when it that's when it got to the Supreme Court. Probably filed in 37, yeah. and then it made okay. its way through the courts. Thank you. That's good. Yeah, because the 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 uh, the property was at 6140 South Rhodes Avenue. So those of you who are in Chicago, you know, South Side Chicago, not South Side. I guess that was canceled. I'm sorry, but uh, in, in kind of a momentum of memory, you know. So when you have some memory, you don't put stuff like that on television, no matter how funny it is. You know, you can laugh at a lot of stuff that's poison. But uh, at any rate. Uh, Although culturally, you can see the affinity is still like, you can laugh, but is it always funny? You know, are they laughing at you or are they laughing with you? But at any rate, Southside Chicago, 30 blocks or so of the Southside Chicago were expanded as a result of Hansberry versus Lee. Well, when Lorraine Hansberry um, got old enough, she left Chicago. She left Chicago when she moved to New York. This is around 1950. And she started working for Paul Robeson. Cause, oh, I should mention, um, growing up in Chicago, a lot of people, when they would come to Chicago, would stay in the family home. By those people, I mean Paul Robeson. I mean W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes. They all knew the Lees. The Lees were well-known. And, of course, her uncle, who was the leading classical African. So everybody who uses Hotep at a pejorative, I want you to listen real carefully about this. Well, New Hansberry is probably somebody you would have called a Hotep. Now, then you ask yourself, what does that say about you? But you can recover. You can recover. Just do a little studying. Maybe start with Leo Hansberry. Two volumes edited by the good brother and elder Joseph Harris, the William Leo Hansberry notebooks. Or you can go to the website of the William Leo Hansberry Society and look at the conference that was held two Saturdays ago. It's all posted online under the William Leo Hansberry conversation. And if after all that you still decide that Hotep is a pejorative, then perhaps you should find a very good counselor. We have some in narrative in Nubia, and they can help you because clearly now you hate yourself so much that you're projecting it onto us and we just got to contain that kind of foolishness until you get better. But of course, as Tony Cave on Bar would ask at the first page of the Salt Eaters, the question really is, sweetheart, do you want to be well? But at any rate, Hansberry moves to New York and she knows Paul Robeson. So Robeson gives her a job on her newspaper, on his newspaper, Freedom. Freedom was the newspaper that Paul Robeson edited and she's writing Pan-African stuff because by then Robeson and Du Bois, Shirley Graham, Du Bois, Eslanda Robeson, all them, Alphaeus Hunton, you know, Dorothy Hunton and all them. A lot of couples involved in this, very interestingly enough. William Patterson, uh, you know, Louise Thompson Patterson, they all doing this Pan-Africanist work. They have something called the Council for African Affairs. Young Lorraine Hansberry, she's 20 years old, is in New York writing on these newspapers, doing this work. And then she falls in love with this brother, wait, yeah, uh, Robert Nimeroff. No, Rob, white dude. Uh, I think she met him around uh, New York University. She marries this white dude. And this white dude is a songwriter. He writes a song, and apparently the song was very popular, um, song Cindy O. Cindy. I ain't never heard it. But at any rate, it made so much money that she didn't have to work. So she spent the rest of her life as a playwright. She ends up divorcing him, but he ends up caping for her for the rest of his life. He's the one who gets her other uh, plays published. He, he puts together an anthology of her writings called To Be Young, Gifted in Black. By the way, Young, Gifted in Black was a speech that Lorraine Hansberry gave to some young black writers um, around 1963, I think it was. I had you, you look it up, Prof, and, and tell me. But that is, of course, the inspiration for Nina Simone, who was 
Lorraine Hansberry's friend, her song, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. Because what Lorraine Hansberry told those young people was, it is a beautiful time to be young and gifted, but it is especially a beautiful time to be young, gifted, and black. And she talks about that. Even as she is sick, ultimately will make transition because of, of cancer. But, you know, supported in this marriage, supported with these resources, which I mentioned because it's important to be reminded that resources enable us to do this kind of work in a capitalist society. You know, we spent some time yesterday at the Rockefeller Center. Prof, you were telling me you you spent you spent some time at the Rockefeller Center, huh? Have you you been through there? How many? You, you, you know, all the time. I mean, we, we um I used to take my class for a tour there because you know I worked at MSNBC for three years. I had a contract for the uh, <laughs> for the cancer. Yeah, I saw Joe and Mika on the wall. Like, what yeah, the hell are yeah, before, <laughs> yeah. I was I was on my way, Doctor Carr, to be at one of those. <laughs> I was on my way to being a pick me Negro boy. I was right there, right there. So yeah, no, I've been, I, and I used to, you know, hold class there and bring my students through, and we, you know, we did the tour with the, you know, RCA and the, the, you know, beginning of, you know, how all of that started, the, the ice skating rink, and, you know, it's it's the rink is so much smaller. Can you, you imagine? Yeah, I mean, they have a restaurant right there, so you could eat. And watch the people skate and bust their asses. Some people are really good. Be really good. It's, it's an experience until you realize some things, right? Well, but you know, it doesn't take long, does it, Prof? To realize some things, right? The well, people who are pushing the brooms and selling the stuff this is brown people. Yes. Like New York. Yes. They're not white people. And then you look up and you see the robber baron riches. Rockefeller Center, seven different buildings. This hive, a, what they call it, prop a city within a city. City within a city. A city of the of tomorrow. A city that is a tribute to modernism, but at the center of it. See, you started this, prop because what did you say? You said stories. This whole thing is a story. It is the intellectual history of Europe. I can hear Jerry Clark right now. This is the this is this is how they see themselves, and this is how they see you. You at the bottom of that pyramid. You opening the doors, you you polishing the brass and the marble. Meanwhile, they upstairs and they got a minstrel class to keep you distracted. I saw you and Jimmy Fallon's thing over there and then the rest of the people. But, but let, let me, let's be very clear, the Rainbow Rooms, very nice Radio City Music Hall. But here's the only important thing. The important thing is capitalism. So you at the bottom of the murals. <laughs> you you're at the bottom of the murals. When you see that, you know, Jose uh, Maria Cert murals, and we, we stand up there looking at these people at the bottom struggling and then above it is all this stuff could have come out of Soviet Union. You know, labor, you know, what is it George Orwell said? Work makes you free. <laughs> In other words, you're working so that you can not work. That's not the purpose of work. You know, you satisfy yourself through this labor and through this labor, you're creating a better life, but you're also being fulfilled because you're working in community. Now, these people said it's the hunger game. Yeah, these murals are incredible. You know, Frank Brockwin murals. And you see, like, what, what are you doing? And these messages, you know. And then you got out there at the ice skating rink, you got Prometheus who stole fire from the gods. And over his shoulder up there in the damn building across is Zeus looking down at him mad. So, so y'all guys be fighting, huh? Yeah, our guys fight too, but they reconcile. Right? But y'all just stay fighting. <laughs> Jim Carruthers called this the, the metaphysics of alienation. In other words, they constantly fighting with each other. This is the meaning of life. The meaning of life is to bust somebody ass where they bust you. And if you can get to the top and peer down over them and you ain't got to work no more, you've made it. This is the Rockefeller Center. And they dump so much money in it. And they so this is a great civic project. No, it was privately financed. 
It's a private thing. And then they open it to the public. It's so great. And then if they got a couple of fingernails worth of dough, they flick a few coins down toward Atlanta. And one of the members of the family, Laura Spellman Rockefeller, gets to you have some money to play with Spellman. And maybe you could have you could have created a million Spellmans, but you built the tribute to yourself. This is the height of ego of Europe. And then you try to put that stuff on us. It is incredible. But I'm saying that to bring all this to this point. Lorraine Hansberry's husband wrote a jingle and got rich, and she could write plays for the rest of her short, all too brief life. Well, Rockefeller gives out fellowships. Harmon gave out fellowships to artists. The Ford Foundation gave out, gave out fellowships. Mellon Foundation gave out fellowships. I'm talking about criminals, robber barons, great wealth built on crimes. And Negroes run around here like that scene in Invisible Man when they threw them few coins in the middle of the damn boxing ring and all them little boys with their shirts off start beating each other up for it in the Battle Royale. These are the, the, the Negro academics who, who, who boast with pride they have won one of these fellowships instead of turning back toward their people, the descendants of them people, and say, let us support ourselves and create something so that we don't ever have to beg for a nickel again from people who show you what money they really have when they build something like Rockefeller Center on your ass. And then put all of the ability to tell their stories in one place and create the broadcast empire. And therefore, they can shape your imagination. So all you dream about at night is one day skating at Rockefeller Center or being there when they like the Christmas tree. This is the war of stories. And this is what Lorraine Hansberry is writing about in her play of Raising the Sun, because when she is able to write full time, she drafts the Crystal State. And then she redrafts and it becomes Raising in the Sun. And what does she model the characters in a Raising in the Sun on? Her family. The father, who we never see, whose insurance policy sets this whole thing off. She said, she says, I model him almost like on my father, the man who came up from nothing and was able to build this thing and give us a start, a head start. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me pause here. We've just left the social structure. Now we're in governance because a raising the sun is a governance play. It's not who we are to other people. It's who we are to each other, even as we are trying to figure out how we interact with the social structure. So the father in Raising the Son, we never see him. He's gone. His death, ironically, is what allows them to have the chance to do what they want to do with this little bit of resources, because otherwise they can never get enough money to reach, to reach escape velocity. Well, let's think about that. The mother, the mother, Mama Younger, has a glance at her mother. So you're talking about her parents. I want a better life. I want a different life. I want to, I want my family to make the next inch forward. But you ain't never going to be the Rockefellers. What are you trying to do? One of the critiques of Lorraine Hansberry's father, Carl Hansberry, was that he was a slumlord. See, okay, now here's the problem. We'll pause here for a second. Again, we can talk about this another time. But, you know, we talk about this um, in, my, in my law class. We talk about property law. We talk about the fact that many of the restrictive covenants were challenged by black real estate agents. The St. Louis case uh, in D.C. was a white agent. I think, uh, what was the guy's name? His name escapes me right now. He was Italian. He was buying properties, some of them near Howard University, from white buyers, white sellers, white real estate agent, Italian, buying these. And then he was turning around and selling them to black people 
Why? For two reasons. One, he said, I'm not white. You know, at that time, Italians hadn't fought their way into whiteness yet, uh, ran the, ran the sense. But at any rate, they, they had, he said, so we are treated on the periphery of whiteness. So I feel some solidarity with these black people. But the other reason, as folks, you say, do well while you do good. The thing is, he could jack up the prices and sell them to the black people because legally he wasn't supposed to sell them to them because the restricted covenant said you can't sell to black people. So what he was doing is he's buying these properties, turn around selling the black people. The properties weren't in the best shape, but he's claiming I'm doing them a favor and I'm also getting you property. And so he's setting it up for the legal challenge, but he's also banking. Well, this was also what was going on in other, uh, other cities, Detroit, Chicago, except it was black real estate agents. So you have black real estate agents who some people say were being predators to the black community. I wouldn't I don't know if I would go that far because they were challenging the restricted companies, but they were also charging poor black people and work class black people more for a mortgage than they were charging. They could charge otherwise because these people were held being held hostage. Well, Carl Hansberry was criticized for saying, man, you you lord it over the slums. The great irony, in other words, of the cultural meaning made peace, making peace a raised in the sun is that the people in the play are working class people but Lorraine Hansberry comes from middle class people and in, in some ways she's engaged in a critique of her own life and experience which is why when you see the son Sidney Poitier originally uh, creating that character when you see Walter Lee she's saying this is in some ways some elements of my own siblings she had several siblings a couple, couple of brothers yeah, these are my brothers now it's my turn. What am I going to do in the world? Think about the angst that each generation of Black people had. We want to get farther ahead than our parents. What is farther ahead? What is farther ahead? Oh, you're thinking linearly. What is farther ahead? <laughs> do you understand? And so what, what does it mean to get ahead in a society that you're never going to be Rockefeller? Why? Because when you get to the Rockefeller level, they don't even count any money. They count in their ability to bend you to their will. And they at home working from home. And you're at somewhere polishing the brass in the building with their name on it. This is the class strata. You can't get that way. You think a liquor store going to get you to the Rockefellers? Well, I guess it is if you change it to ROC and dash A and then dash and then F-E-L-L-A and maybe hang out. Don't come here for a couple of thousand years and then go hang out with some NFL owners. And maybe one day they'll give you a team. Let's be very clear. Let us be very clear. You can't win capitalism because what the trick is, they not winning capitalism. But at any rate, in a raisin in the sun, what you see is these class tensions come out. But then she places herself in it. And in one interview, at least one interview, she says the young sister who's talking about Africa and brings the African dude home and this kind of thing. The young sister beneath you. She says, Benita is me eight years ago. It debuts in 1959. See, that was me when I came to work with Paul Robeson and them. And, and so what we're seeing is these tensions. What is the future? We also spent a couple of hours at the United Nations yesterday. Prof, I know you spent some time at the UN. Tell us about what you think about the United Nations building. I mean, being in that, just well, that first experience. Because my first time there. I used to have to pass it when I was at Hunter uh, uh, all the time when I was physically there because it's right there, right there. But I, I did a radio show from there a couple of times. Uh, when I was doing radio for WWRL, we had an event there. And as a journalist, I was there many times. Amazing, amazing space and very um, global majority. It's very, very uh, full of us. I was there when Kofi Annan was the uh, mm. leader of the UN. And it's, it's always like African. And, and it was amazing, you know, like to see all of the folk 
It was a lot of folk. A lot of folk. Isn't it something to be in yeah. a space that central to world affairs and you can count the white people? And it's, so it, <laughs> I don't even think I recognized, you know, when we, when we talk about the global majority, and again, that's a nod to Francis Crest Welsing. That's the first place that I saw yes. that we were the global majority. And yes. I believe in resurrecting things and not letting them die. So, um, you know, we, we were talking last night about this space when you think about the, they know, they know that we're the global, global majority. I had a conversation with a, an executive at Sirius XM and I was like, you know, um, Nigeria will have more people under the age of 18 than any place in the world. And they already have more than a billion people as just yes. a country. Yes. But more people, like I think like 200 million under the age of 18 in the next couple of years and Ghana's next, right? Mm. And he was shocked. You know, he's melanemic. He was like, really? I was like, yeah. I was like, it's no coincidence that Netflix is leaning heavily into Nollywood. There's no coincidence that all of these spaces, these streaming spaces, they understand that content. That's right. uh, that's, and Bollywood, by the way, the RRRs, yeah. and now Korea's coming too, you know, like it, big time. You can't ignore, and and the the not just the contributions of, but the power of, because these places recognize their power. No question. They when we, when we do, when black folk, and I'm talking across the diaspora, recognize yes. the true power, and yes. you see a glimpse of it at the UN, Yes. Katie barred the door, it's over. Ooh, listen, you have said a whole word there. We walking around, first of all, we walk, we watch these African women. I'm sorry, I'm, you know, I'm biased, but black women are God, and it's very clear, anytime you look at black women, by themselves or in groups. And these sisters walking around like they own not only themselves and the building, but the entire universe. <laughs> and they not even being ostentatious about it. Just walking, just walking around. They talk to each other, they greet each other. And then out of that energy, they're also talking and greeting with other women, Indian women, indigenous women. I mean, you see all these, they were sitting in a session today because we are in the middle of the 67th session of the commission on the status of women. That's what they're doing for the first two weeks of, two plus weeks of March at the United Nations right now. We're in the 67th session. In other words, 67 times they've had this meeting around women. We, we were peeking in, looking in one of the halls, they were having a conversation about women in technology, and microfinance, and these women all over. I mean, you know, we were looking at the sisters and they clearly talking with each other. These are black women. I'm talking about if you're taking my mama, your mama, anybody else and drop them in the middle of that conversation and they couldn't understand a word of Swahili or a word of Kosa or a word of whatever the language they were speaking, they would still understand everything because black women just about to look on their face and the gestures. And they said, I'm like, look at this, right? This is unbelievable. And so when you raise that, again, in the context of Lorraine Hansberry is a raising in the sun because we know at the central of that play is this dilemma, how do we make progress? How do we make progress? And the next generation thinks progress is in forms of capitalism. But that's also in tension with those who are saying, like Benita, no, progress is in the form of solidarity, global solidarity. Well, we saw that on display. We saw it on display last day. We were walking around during the tour, and you see the social structure. There's a whole exhibit on the first floor right now about slavery and the Dutch. Now, the Dutch, like the Rockefellers, like the Mellons, like the Fords, and all that, I know people will say, you shouldn't beat up on the Fords and the Mellons and the Rockefellers. And I, I say again, Burn it down. Burn it down. But at any rate, 
Again, we come from the social structure again. But there's this exhibit where they're talking about slavery. And ostensibly, it's a good thing, right? Because you want people to know. And then you realize, okay, y'all did this to us. Then you wait a few centuries and then pay yourself to tell us about it. And we're supposed to thank you for telling the story. Again, stories. <laughs> stories. And you see the shackles they used on us. You see the stories. It's breaking your heart. And it says, funded by the Dutch people who made all this money and all these goddamn co co companies. What the hell? You, you Now you pay yourself? I mean, I'm just reading the Financial Times. You know, the CEO of, of, of Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, millions of dollars. And they making so much money, hand on fist, and Black people still down in Nigeria. But again, the tensions that we see in A Raisin in the Sun are global tensions. Because while the United Nations is in session, and they're having conversations, they took us in, and of course we did the tour, so we saw the UN General Assembly room, we went into the room where they have the meetings on security, the Security Council. And we know now that they, while we were there, they were actually in a closed session next door because they've been debating for years how to break up this veto status and permanent members of the Security Council. Because the world don't like that, the 192 countries that make up the United Nations. So how does the US, Great Britain, France, y'all all like Nash, you ain't even got no weight like that no more. And in Russia and China, because you can't keep them out. But then you got other uh, elements that say you can never be a permanent member. Like Germany is barred because after 1945, they said the Germans can't be in and the Italians don't want them in anyway. It's like Europe still bring these problems in. But I'm saying I like to say that in this context, while we're in there listening to this social structure, uh, battles and, and next door to the security council chamber is the old trustee council chamber. And, you know, asking the tour guide, is that where Patrice Lumumba, where after they killed Lumumba, they had the meeting and the brothers came and sisters came in and broke up the meeting. And I mean, there have been real battles at the UN, as you know, because people need to understand that we are global. As we're having those battles, we have to understand that in the governance formations that we have, and you mentioned Nigeria, so it's a good time Andy, to make this comparison, those class tensions are also in other parts of the world. We walking around, we saw these you two young brothers, because guess what else is in town? The model United Nations. And so you see these young people, didn't see any black ones, but I'm sure there are a handful sprinkled around, with the student UN staff, they managing everything. It says close to 8,000 of these students gonna be in in two sessions, consecutive sessions over the next few weeks. And then we're seeing students, black students, white students, students clearly. And these two young brothers are walking and yeah, I stopped the cat because I like the outfit. He had that kind of, you know, I need to lose a few pounds. I can wear that outfit. I like that two piece joint, you know, kind of Nehru-ish look like, uh, you know, uh, sacred charades to wear that way. These two young brothers, where y'all from? Nigeria. Oh, okay. So we started talking. I mean, these cats couldn't have been more than 16 years old, maybe 15, 14 years old. Molly, you in? So this election just happened. You know, y'all were OB, stone face. Like, what the hell? So, oh, Tanubu, Tanubu. Huh. Where you from? Abuja. Ain't nobody from Abuja. <laughs> Man, that's the capital. Meaning what? These young cats are being positioned to inherit whatever their elders are doing right now. So, as Charlie Cobb reminded us in that piece we read from uh, uh, Notes from Return on Returning Home when they were in Tanzania, snicking them after they went over in, in the 70s. You know, this class tension is all over. Within the governance structures, the very same class tensions that Lorraine Hansberry is challenging in terms of middle class expectation versus working class expectation. Well, you got it in Nigeria. Yes, all those hundreds of millions are going to be there, but if you're going to keep the people in misery at the bottom of the pyramid while you try to create a black version of them people at the top of the human pyramid that's on the ceiling at the Rockefeller Center, then all you're doing is becoming black-faced whites. 
And these two young cats are too young to be locked into a criminal enterprise like that. But you can't jailbreak that without solidarity. Meanwhile, you got Negroes in the United States calling themselves descendants of slaves and wrapping themselves with an American flag in direct contravention to the sacrifice of these Africans. And you just say, where do we start? We start here, what we're doing right now. Meaning what? You don't get in no arguments with people. You keep pouring a clean glass of water. And as you say, you just kind of put it out there, you connect. And you, as you say, you make the call. I love it. And the people respond. So, you know, thinking about this in the context then of social structure, governance structure, these ways of knowing. Lorraine Hansberry is reminding us that stories matter. It isn't just data. It isn't just data because data is out there. It's how you shape the data. And the stories that are being told in the United Nations, these women, it's people in here right now who didn't know. Yes, there was an International Day of the Woman, woman last week. But they're having two weeks of meetings with women all over the world at the United Nations. The General Assembly is there. This whole model UN is going on. Some of y'all were in model again. While the social structure creates a certain narrative, Andrew DeSantis, this is a word for you, Puffer. You're not important. You're not important in the world, little man. First of all, you ain't never gonna be president of the United States. And even if you are, you know the US is in the rearview mirror of world history at this point. Go to the UN sometime. Because, of course, he, he might go to the U.N., but I'll tell you what he might do. He might come across the street to Deron Brown State Department building. Now, first of all, y'all put a black man's name on what looks like a huge-ass high-rise prison that you put across the street from the U.N. I know you got every kind of surveillance device known to God and man in there. But it ain't going to stop the fact that the world goes on with or without the United States of America. And y'all ain't got that kind of weight no more. England is losing companies. They try, they're saying we want to be delisted on the London stock market. Come to New York. France is, is have its own internal conflicts and combats. Europe is trying to figure out how to hold on for dear life. Meanwhile, the rest of the world has to grapple with the fact that if it's quote unquote leaders model the West, we're going to have a problem. And, and the American Negro, the ones in the United States of America turn inward at this point, it's suicide. Trust is suicide. But guess what? Some of us know that and more of us know it every, every day. So you know, we just kind of thinking about how Lorraine Hansberry and reminding us that narratives matter, stories matter. It isn't just data that matters. We have to remain focused, particularly in a moment when people try to substitute information for meaning. If you have information, that's important. But what makes this space important and spaces like it essential is that how do, is the question, how do you sort through the data? In the New York African burial ground, it isn't enough to test DNA samples from African people who passed away. It isn't just about how African are you? Where's the data? It's like, what does the data tell us? What does the data tell, tell me about what we should do? And in fact, I, we'll kind of wind up in a minute or two. I may get up and, and walk around a little bit to, uh, to show you a little bit of what's really beyond this chamber. Because when you come to the uh, the Weiss Federal Building, the New York, I'm uh, sorry, the New York African Burial Ground. The Park Service runs a visitor center. It's open every day. You can come and you can see the story of the burial ground. You can watch a short video, a documentary. You can uh, see uh, information about those ancestors, and most importantly, you can experience the narrative. Some some of the things we talked about today, but I want to show you all one thing. If I can get out beyond here, I'm, I'm going to take this. This is, we're all experimenting now, Prob. This is this is our our, our trial uh, field run. I've been away from 
the library a few times, but this is the first time we actually in a place where we want to go. Um, but I want to mention just a couple of other things. Um, you know, it, these things are small, but they're also large. So, for example, uh, another World Baseball Classic started. I don't know if any of you all in, in Nubia are, or watching this later are baseball fans. I was watching the, the game the other day, and uh, the yeah, – oh, that's Jimmy now. <laughs> Come on here, brother. You good? Everything good? This is my man. <laughs> Jimmy, they getting ready to, to – hold on. Let me say, hey, man, you out, bro? Hey, man, thank you, brother. Look, look that's, see, that's how servants work. They don't want to be on camera. But I'm telling all you thousands, I'm telling them to come down there and see you, man. What are the days of the week, uh, Ranger Clackley? From Tuesday to Saturday. Tuesday through Saturday. I said seven days a week. I messed up. Yeah, 10 to 4. 10 to 4. Yeah, we close Sunday Monday. Close Sunday Monday, 10 to 4, Tuesday through Saturday. So Where's he, where's he from? He sounds like he's from the island. This your homie? Yes. Look, which one? No, he, he, he's from the island, South Carolina. <laughs> oh, he's, 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 he's from the island. been up here for so long. You Come know, still in Jersey. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Clackley is South Carolinian, but he's a New Yorker too. So. Okay, it's, it's all the same. All the same. All the same. Hey, man, love you, brother. Thank you, man. Yeah, Emily hooked us up, man. In fact, I'm, I'm going to follow them out in a second. I want y'all to see. A little bit, uh, at least see the cosmogram. You taking us outside? Dr. Yeah, but no, I ain't gonna be getting, I'm gonna take you out this room over okay. there to see the cosmogram. I really want okay. you to see that because, uh, all right, so you yeah. want me to play something while you while you get nope. up? Okay, nope. oh, we just gonna go, all right, we just gonna go. We're gonna, uh, so yeah, the world baseball classic is this week, and one of the beautiful things I love about it is that these are some of the uh, look, here's the Kwanzaa joint. Remember, I tell you that story. Well, when a little boy had his baby bodily turn upside down, try to play like a drum. That's the Kwanzaa. <laughs> they do Kwanzaa here. Here are a couple more of the uh, the caskets that you see there. You go here. A few more of the caskets and some more of the uh, this is my Angelou uh, stamp because, of course, as I said, she's there. This is the library. This is just the administrative offices. So the New York African Burial Ground Project. The seven volumes of the New York African Burial Ground uh, report were done at Howard University. Shout out to the great ancestor, former dean of the College of Arts and Sciences there, Sankofa, again. Some proclamations. The great ancestor, um, James Donaldson, Dean Donaldson, who was the dean. He uh, He's the one who actually had us do the project. Uh, hold on a second here. Hold on, let me make sure. Oh, yeah. Let me, uh, here are some of the identical symbols that are actually on the monument. So you see that? Yeah. See, I got them. That's actually in the, uh, in the place. And I'm going to walk out. So I'm going to get back in here. All right, very quick. We're in the federal building now. This is the lobby. These acknowledgments of some of the, uh, the people who worked on it. Hold steady, hold steady. Oh, sorry. Good night. Acknowledge, let's see. Some of the people there you recognize. And here's Unearthed. This is Frank Bender's piece. They reconstructed the faces of some of the folk from facial reconstruction based on the technology. This is all in the Florida public building. And uh, 
how they what, did it. Hold on, Dr. Carr. What's in, what their hands are clasped? Yes. That's so the hands are clasped, meaning all three of them giving forward to us. We are one. And of course, Sankofa in there. You see Sankofa. So reconstructed, you take the skull, you then do what you can to reconstruct the faces, and you sculpt it. Again, caskets here. A great piece by the great Barbara Chase Rabot. A ship, in fact, called Africa Rising. But here's the piece, Houston Conwell, whose wife, Kinshasa, my friend Kinshasa, who just retired from the um, African American Museum, Smithsonian. This is her husband. You know, lifelong love of her life. Two artists, met at University as undergraduates. This is the beautiful cosmogram that takes up the floor of the federal building. Mm. That cosmogram quotes from all over the world. Rosa Parks, Dr. Ben, Yosef Ben Yakinen. Y'all gonna stop calling people hotels. The day after Harriet Tubman's day, look at a Harriet Tubman quote. Harriet Tubman. Pull it down a little bit, Dr. Carr. So when I found that. out I had crossed that line, there was such a glory over everything. I am free and they shall be free. I will bring them here. Harriet Tubman. And then that's in Spanish. Yes. Espanol. Yes. Red Douglas. But un here's the now under that line, you see there's another line that has the names of some of the ethnic groups of our people who were taken. Let me see. Let me go up here so I can see what I'm showing y'all. Uh, hold on. Hold on. I gotta see where the camera is. Oh, here it is over here. Here we go. Let me see. Let me get it lined up here. Uh-oh. Hold up. Give me a second. This is where we're going to have the professional camera people when we ain't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Why? Why? This shaky thing is so good. <laughs> right. It's so great. The T, the Yoruba, the Bamun, the Tikar, the Fulani. The other cosmogram here. Hold up. Let me get it straight. Right, here we are. The cosmogram, you'll see. You see those circles? They're circles within circles. This is a Kikongo cosmogram. The four moments of the sun, it's rivers. The Stono River, the Tigris River, Euphrates River, rivers in Brazil, rivers in the Caribbean. It's a libation. Intersections of power lines, and then you have lines like lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven reign. You see the Negro National Anthem? Then places in the New York area Louis Armstrong's house, Shea Stadium, Rufus King house, Bed-Stuy uh, restoration. This is the great cosmogram that takes up the floor of the, I don't know how many stories this place is. Who designed that, Dr. Carr? That's the beautiful. Great, the great Houston Conwell. Folks may know Houston Conwell. If you've ever been to the Schomburg, the Schomburg Center has another of his cosmograms. It's the one under which are buried the ashes of Langston Hughes. So it has this very important, very important, so I'm gonna come back in and we'll end again. This is what we're after, after all, of course, which is understanding. <laughs> no so we're gonna go back in the, in the meeting room that Jimmy let us use with 
Is that a Kenzie Clark uh, runner? On of course. Yes. Of course it is. You already know what it is. You know, these cats, they don't do nothing halfway. <laughs> he don't do nothing halfway. I can't wait. Because uh, when, when, I, when I told him, you know, we want to come up, he was so fired up. But we ain't going to the visitor center. That's just what's in the federal building. The visitor center has all this stuff. So you should come up. And when you come, tell them you're Nubian. You know, because they, they are looking out for us. Over the years, I've had a lot of folks who, who have worked in this site. Uh, Lashea Howie, one of my former students at Howard, one of Mark's students, along with Justin. Lashea was a ranger here. If you're a young person and you want a good job where you can do some work with your people and also do intellectual work and cultural work and preservation work, maybe consider joining the National Park Service if you're in the United States as a park ranger. Lachea worked here while she was doing her graduate work. Uh, she also worked, you know, Weeksville over in Brooklyn, mm. one of the oldest black settlements. Lachea worked there. Uh, Ava Wilson. I'm trying to think of, you know, ranges I know. My, you know, my former student, uh, my child, Shanice Thompson, she was a park ranger. She worked at, uh, at Arlington National Cemetery. So she could tell you where all the black people were buried. She did that while she was in undergrad. You know, shout out to Elizabeth Clark Lewis, who we talked about, one of the students of Olive Taylor, who uh, does public history at Howard University. They're great jobs. And so a lot of these, a lot of the folks who work here are park rangers, uh, including Emily, who helped us this morning, Emily Watson. You know, they're younger people. And uh, some of them become career folk, like Jimmy, who's been working for the Park Service now for decades. Uh, some of them continue. When, I, when we first started coming up here to Sister Oh, I see her face. I can't call her name. She ended up going to, uh, she took over Independence Hall and then that whole district. There have been a series of black women who ran the Independence Hall district. So when you go to Philly to Independence Hall, there are black women all shot through that. Uh, the great Joy Kennard, Joy Kennard, whose father, John Kennard, started the first museum, black museum in the Smithsonian system. It is not the Museum of African American History. It's not the Museum of African Art. It's the Anacostia Community Museum, east of the river in DC, John Kennard's daughter, Joy, uh, Dr. Joy Kennard. She, for many years, was over the Mary McLeod Bethune House in uh, Washington, DC. She's now, uh, she was now, she was then over the uh, the Colonel Charles Young House in Wilberforce, Ohio. And lately they moved her to, memory serves me correctly, Tuskegee, which is a National Park Service site. These are cultural keepers. Every time we come up here, I'll end with this. We pour libation. In fact, if you go to the National Park Service website, the New York African Burial Ground, there's a picture of us from Howard right out here because you can't walk on these graves. There's a, there's a barrier there. But we would come up before we would do tour of the place, we would pour libation. So there's a picture of us in here in, 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 at the banner at the, at the New York African Burial Ground page for the National Park Service. There's a picture of all the students lined up and we're pouring libation. Why is that important? I mean, I know people pour out a little something for the homies. Yeah, know, oh yeah. That, you know, but they don't even know why. <laughs> they don't even know why a lot of times mm -hmm. they're doing that. That is inherent. Why is that important before you go tour? That you oh yeah, yeah, we're going we to spend some time. Yeah, we're going to, we, we down here now, so we got to do that. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. We live in a world, as we know, that is facing in one direction what we think is forward. And as a result, we don't ground ourselves in the reality that time isn't backward and forward. 
Time isn't sideways and sideways. Time is. And when you mention, for example, Dan Black, our brother, Baba Matosho, Dr. Black, and his incredible, powerful novel, The Coming, it sent me back to the bookshelf as we've been talking about, because, you know, Monday night in Nubia, we're going to have a two-hour conversation with Dr. Black. And so everybody come, because we're going to talk and during our regular office hours. We're going to suspend the, the course for a moment, the Afro-Main States course, that hour we do there. And we're just going to talk about Black on Black. So it's going to be a good conversation, the new book. And so uh, so that's because, you know, uh, Monday night. But in thinking about it, it sent me back to the bookshelf, to a book that I hadn't read in a few years. And that was uh, Aikwe Armand's book, 2000 Seasons. 2000 Seasons, this novel, which of course is now published by his collective, Per Ankh. Nubia is a form of Per Ankh. Aikwe said, you can't tell your own story unless you control the resources and control everything about that story. Otherwise, not your story. You may be writing for a grant, writing for publication to get the butt best. No, no, write from yourself. So this is completely funded by friends of Per Ankh and it's controlled by them there in Pobangin, Senegal and everything he's ever written is now published under Per Ankh as we know. Well, in 2000 season, he starts with the metaphor of the river. He says, if you pour spring water into the desert, it evaporates. You cannot change the desert by pouring water into it. He says, you have to trace that water back to its source. And in tracing that water back to its source, what you will find is that that was the desert. He said, but as long as you think the desert is somehow the destination, you're moving towards death. And the opening pages of 2000 season and the opening pages of the coming just resonate with one and like they pair. It's like, we didn't know. We didn't know. Our mind's like, yes, you didn't know, but you kept moving in that direction. And when you figured it out it was crazy, you started trying to come back. But now you're confronting people who still think the thing is that way. That's the conflict. This is the raising in the sun. <laughs> no, I'm trying to, no, I'm trying to go that way. No, you should go back this way. No, I'm trying to go that way. And then the conflict becomes the story. No, what am I saying is the source is ultimately what we have to see. We have to recognize that if you're moving in the wrong direction, as Olive Taylor said, it could be the most beautiful job in the world, but if it's in the wrong direction, you need to get off. I'm saying I have to say in conclusion that when you see someone pour libation, it is a recognition that we came from somewhere. There is a source. And guess what? These people here, they aren't the source. See, we were not born on the water. We were not born in slavery. We were born from people who were born from people, who were born from people. Yes, these 2,000 seasons of oppression that we have had to suffer are only 2,000 seasons in countless numbers of seasons before. When you return to the source, you are reconnecting in ways that will help you then, having reconnected, you will then be able to move forward. Then and only then will you be able to move forward. So when, when people pour libation, what we are recognizing is that we did not make ourselves, but that now in this little moment we have, what we call life, as Lorraine Hansberry might say, we're trying to impose the reason for life on life. We are not doing that based on our desires alone. We are doing that based on the momentum of memory. That is why, as Lorraine Hansberry was telling these young people and telling these writers in 1959, you must tap into the essence of who we have been. And when the homies pour out a little liquor or pour out a little libation on the corner. What they're saying is, this is for the ones who are now ancestors. They may not know exactly why they're doing it, but they are yearning to return to the source, as Alma Carver Brawl might say. As long as you're doing that, we can figure out a way to get back to the source. But we must always remember, in that direction, 
in that direction lies death for everybody, regardless of what color you might think you are. Mm. All right. We're going to sit for a little bit with her. Um, yes. Because I found the speech that you. Oh, you found? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, I'm gonna drop a link for the Nubian so y'all can watch it in its in its entirety. Uh, at the end, I think there's a recitation of uh, "Brazen in the Sun." Ten minutes, the last ten minutes is a reading from from that. Uh, and today is that somebody in Nubia said they actually saw the play last night, which is wild. You know, oh, what, yeah, and we were talking about it. I don't even know where it is playing yeah. right now. I just saw the play. So, you know, and whatever iteration you've seen, I've seen all of them. Um, I don't even know you, why. You saw the Diddy? I saw the one with Diddy. Yes, I did. What'd you think? Oh, Lord, I saw your eyes go up. I just No, I mean, quick. you know, Felicia Rashad was amazing. <laughs> I love the clean glass. I love the yeah. clean glass. You know amazing. what made me think about that? There was an article in New York Times, the review, and they said that the day the reviewer went, he said he went with a bunch of teenagers who had been busted in to watch the play. And he said, when Diddy came in and said that he had lost the money, they all started laughing. And he said, this was a very poignant point. It wasn't about their behavior in the theater. It was about what well, we live in a culture where, number one, they could not, he could not suspend the fact that he's Diddy. So they were watching Diddy. They weren't watching Walter Lee. And because of that, these young people thought Diddy would never get beat out of some money by some rules. So they were laughing like this some bullshit. So I laughed about it because you have defeated the purpose of a raising in the sun because Diddy is the exact example of what Lorraine Hansberry is critiquing. Nobody believed Diddy got beat. He beats the artist. The artist don't beat him. Well, Anyway. You know, for 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 maybe some, it was the first time that they were introduced to something because, no you know, so people show up. I mean, there's so many, you know, so much commentary. And I want to say this, you know, I spend three hours a day, Monday through Friday on a radio show where I'm talking about a lot of things. Some things I absolutely would love to disconnect from, but I, I, I feel like they're teachable moments in terms yes. of how, how we communicate and anything that I say, anything that I say, it's not a critique of a human being. I'm never no. critiquing. No, 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 no. That's I'm right. never critiquing a human being, even if I call their name. I'm critiquing right. the behavior that doesn't free us. I and if, if that's a problem for people, um, to Dr. Carr's point, please get help. We need full whole bricks, people that have contemplated their existence and understand their power. And um, and I want to shout out the brother that dropped this uh, in Nubia. I'm trying to find it. Oh, yeah, Eric. Eric said, uh, Professor John Clark said, you can't be a local minority anywhere when you are a global majority everywhere. And Come that's on. the sole purpose of this space is for us to remember. I talked to this sister yesterday who uh, does farming. Farmer, yes. she wrote black, black while farming, farming black, while, while black. farming while black. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I thought it was gonna be like a twenty-minute conversation. It ended up being almost an hour because <laughs> everything that she's talking about, from the land to the seed planting to the cooperative to not being able to own land, because this land is your land. This land is my land. This, you know, they we sing these songs. What he got? No connection. Like you can't own land. She said, no so, question. I may no have question. purchased it, but it's a cooperative that we all eat off That's of. Right. And, and right. it requires of us to continue this circle so that <laughs> yeah. we can continue this circle so that we can keep being here. And That's it's not right. centering an individual. It's all of us. So we got to right. ask that Sonia Sanchez question. How That's do right. it free us? And it if it doesn't, then we got to move on from it and no yes. disrespect or we don't hate anybody. 
Mm-mm. But uh, we're gonna center freedom in no loving, question. loving ourselves. No so, question. So with that, love you. Love you too, Dr. Carr. We're gonna sit with this ancestor Let's and let her it. take us out. All right, yes. Green Hansberry Day. I love you. Yes, love you. Mm-hmm. This is the play about anybody. Now, what do you say? That's an excellent question. Uh, because invariably, this has been the point of reference. People are trying, what they, I know what they're trying to say. What they're trying to say, and mistakenly, as a matter of fact, which I'll speak about, what they're trying to say is that this is not what they consider the traditional treatment of the Negro in the theater. They're trying to say that it isn't a propaganda play, that it isn't a protest no play. play. And that it isn't something that hits you over the head and the other remarks which have become cliches themselves as a matter of fact and discussing this kind of material so what they're trying to say is something very good they're trying to say that they believe that uh, the characters in our play transcend category however it's an unfortunate way to try and do it because i believe that one of the most sound ideas and dramatic writing is that in order to create the universal you must pay very great attention to the specific in other words i've told people that not only is this a negro family specifically and definitely culturally but it's not even a new york family <laughs> or a southern negro family it is specifically south side chicago uh, that kind of care, that kind of attention to the detail of reference and so forth. In other words, I think people will, ex- to the extent they accept them and believe them as who they're supposed to be, to that extent they can become everybody. So I was, it's definitely a Negro play before it's anything else. The universality itself is italicized when you say something specific about a specific human being or a group of human beings as you did here. Universality, I think, emerges from truthful identity.